Hello. Hello, Mr. Hendricks. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? Not bad. Hello, gentlemen. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was so late. That's all right. I want to introduce you to my friend Gene. Hi, Gene. Hello, Jim. Nice to meet you. You too, sir. Back to the bin. Now, are you, uh, are you, because I mean, I'm sure Pittsburgh's like any other place, it's not, you know, the smallest thing in the world. Do you go to, uh, is it pronounced Ides, the comic store? No, I, it's, it's weird, like in Pittsburgh, the two biggest stores are, are Ides, and they just have like, imagine comic book guy, but like, as a real person. <laughs> I've, I've met several guys that yeah well they have a couple time. guys like they have a couple guys like they must make them like in an underground facility somewhere and like import you know export them out to through the world but because they have like a couple the couple guys that run their comic situation there are just like that at Ides and, and then there's Phantom of the Attic which has been yes. like Eisner nominated my, my buddy Wayne Wise works there I take my kids there for free comic book day every year it's like one of the best comic book stores I've ever been to. Just very friendly and comfortable and clean, and uh, oh. you know, everything's easy to find, and it's really good. I, I would I would go there at least weekly because I I went to Pitt, mm. so I, I was there for a, a good yeah. number of years. I I remember when it was all one store on Craig yeah. Street when it was before they split. The yeah. Well, first it was um it was all one store, and then they moved up the street. Right, and then and then they split, and when like you said, when one the comics are across the street now, mm-hmm. and and on the other side where the comic store used to be is all like Dungeons and Dragons and gaming. Now. Right, but yeah, I'm I um, when I first moved here to Pittsburgh like 20 years ago, I um, that was the neighborhood I moved to because I was foolishly oh, cool. foolishly trying to find a master's degree in uh, in creative writing. That was stupid on my part, and uh, <laughs> long story, <laughs> but uh, anyway. Oh, but yeah, when when we were in uh, Pittsburgh back in September, uh, you know, we got went for the weekend, but it was busy, busy, busy. I couldn't go, and I, I did like a you know quick search. I saw that Ides was like right around the corner from the hotel we were at, and uh, I didn't get a chance to go there until uh, in between the wedding ceremony and the reception. Uh-huh. We had a little little window, so my daughter and I went over, and uh, we spent maybe half an hour there. But that's not nearly enough time. Oh yeah, they have a, they have everything. Like, and the yeah. store is three. It's three yeah. stories of, <laughs> of of merchandise. Although to be honest, um, there's a place in Cranberry called New Dimension Comics. I think they have like four stores now. They have a couple in Pittsburgh. They have one in, Cran- in Cranberry, which is a suburb of Pittsburgh, and then one further out, like more near Central PA, which is actually just a warehouse. But um, the dude bought, like, a complete run of all-American comics, you know, like, where the original Golden Age Green Lantern came from. Like, Oh, he, wow. He found this huge, like, quarter of a million dollars uh, treasure trove of comics out here in PA. And he since, like, has bought, like, stocks of other stores that have gone. Like, he has a warehouse, and he only opens it up a couple days a year. And everything in there is 50 cents. So you can go through days and for you go through there for days and days, but they're only open like a couple of days a year for this warehouse sale. But they have so many comics. I mean, he has like um, he's got like an eight point Fantastic Four number one. He's got like a really like deep collection. Hmm. Yeah. So 
But he does. Uh, he does. Uh, he's one of the organizers of the new local con around here, um, Spring Rivers Comic Con. Oh, cool. Okay. So he's a super cool dude, and uh, yeah. Anyway, I feel like I've talked a lot now. So <laughs> now, Paul, <laughs> that is the idea of the show, though. <laughs> yeah. Paul, when when you were in Pittsburgh, please, please tell me you at least had a Permani Brothers sandwich. I did not. Ugh. You're not missing anything. Oh, come Ooh, on. We, we're definitely having a clash here. <laughs> it's okay. I, I wish Pittsburgh were known more for putting fries on salads than Pernanis. Yeah. Well, I, you know what? I, I so have to uh, mm-hmm. defer to Jim on, on all things food. <laughs> not, not only is, is, is he a bigger dude than me, but he's also a chef. So I take his, uh, his opinions very it's, seriously. It's, it's fine as a tourist thing, you know. It's like yeah. getting a Chicago hot dog in Chicago. You know? Yeah, it's, it's one of those things like going to Ides. Just say exactly. you've done it. It's like if you go to Philadelphia having a cheese you have to say you've done it. You saw the Statue of Liberty, you know. Yeah. You went well, to I'm, 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 I'm likening Square. it to a, che- to a cheese steak in Philadelphia. Yeah. Yeah. Which I've had, I have had better uh, mm. cheese steaks than Geno's and Pat's, but. Well, they're, they're not, they're the most popular. They're not the best. They're right. the most well-known. Right, but I've had better. It's but they still, you know. Oh, you have to have that. You know, whatever. Exactly. Everybody has their regional food. Either. Right. That's, cool. that's why when when uh, actually, Gene, you it wasn't the last time you were here. It was the time before. Uh, so last summer, you know, guys came here from, uh, you know, basically they come from a lot of different places in the country, and we ended up back here at my house rather than going out to eat. And I ordered pizza from the local pizzeria, and and the guys were eating it, and they were like, "Oh my god, I never had pizza like this," because they used to yeah. like Papa John's and that shit. <laughs> They're used to the chain garbage, not the the mom and pop pizza place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the first uh, the first New York Comic Con I went to, I think it was two thousand eight, two thousand nine. My sister was living in Brooklyn, and she ordered their local pizza while I, the, when I got in like that Thursday night, and. I was like, oh, right, this is what real pizza tastes like. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we were talking about that the other day. We were in, uh, we, we were on vacation last week, and they had bagels, you know, and, and uh, I said to my son, I said, you know, because he was like, oh, I want to I go back and have Long Island bagels. I said, well, really, you need to have Brooklyn bagels. And he was like, oh, I've never had those. So I said, okay, next time we're in Brooklyn, i got to take you to a bagel store, and I'm going to take you over to uh, Spumoni Gardens for pizza. Hmm. That's not, and and again, it's not the best pizza, but it's the most famous pizza. Right. But we could sit and talk food all night. Yes, we can. <laughs> totally, totally good. <laughs> but uh, this this was supposed to be, uh, you know, we, the the room was going to be overflowing with people, and now it turns out it's just the three of us. Oh, Weeder's not coming. No, Dave, you didn't see the uh, texts from Dave. No, I, once we got on, I I basically shut down. Facebook and he unless said, I, uh, I didn't get a chance to read the books. Go on without me. Remember me always. Ha! So I responded to that. Who are you? <laughs> and and it went on from there. Your okay. name. Your name is Jim. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so you you did pick up on the line of uh, yeah, comments so, there. Uh, did you know they're they're um, they're re-releasing it to big screens? I think in about three weeks. Really? Wrath of Khan. Thirty-fifth anniversary. Yep, I, I may have to go so, see it on the big screen totally, for the I'm third totally, time in my life. Totally gonna go see it. I saw 
uh, about a month ago, my girlfriend and I went, and for the first time in my life, I saw The Godfather on the big screen. Oh, oh with the um, uh, Fathom Events Yes. Thing? Yeah, I, I missed that, but we saw Ten Commandments last year when they had it. Uh, that's that a nice one. Yeah. Yeah, we saw Jaws, actually. <laughs> I saw Jaws on the big screen in 1975. Well, yeah, I did too, but we saw the uh, when they came out with the new uh, like 4K Blu-ray or whatever, they had like a limited theatrical release of that mm. cut, like the cleaned-up cut. Mm. It was super nice. They did the same it's thing with Raiders when they came out with the Blu-ray of that. They had like a two-week theatrical release of Raiders of the cleaned-up version. It's funny dealing with, you know, most of the guys I deal with. I mean, Jim, you're, you're just a couple of years younger than me, but you're, you're close. <laughs> uh, some of these guys are a lot younger. And they talk about all these movies, uh, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah, I saw that in the movie theater. And they're like, I wasn't even born then. <laughs> yeah, right. I was trying to explain to my six-year-old the other day that there was a time before Internet. <laughs> I I was in Barnes and Noble the other day with my daughter, who is going to be nine in a couple weeks, and they have this huge section of vinyl. And I'm just, <laughs> hey, th this is how we used to listen to music. You had to put it on this thing that spun it around, and those little needle would go up and down. I have a turntable within arm's length of me right now, and I've been reacquiring some of my old vinyl. It's been a bit, it's become a thing now. I mean, yeah. I mean like like new bands are coming out with stuff on vinyl and stuff. There's there's a uh, a used record store. It's not too close to me, but I'm in the area every once in a while, and I stop in and I look, and I've been able to get a couple of records, and they're in good shape. They sound fine, you know, no problems with them. But I've been able to get them cheaper than what I paid for them when they were new. When they, you know, when they when I was yeah. buying records for like five dollars, you know, I, I bought a copy. I mean, it's a three-album set. I bought Wings Over America, which I had bought back in whatever it was, 1975, when it came out. Right. And I bought I bought it for the, uh, a couple of weeks ago for three ninety. Well, that's like a big, th like fold-out album. I yeah. Remember, it's, right? It's, it's like a three an airplane album set. that folds out into three albums. Yeah. Yeah. No, was I like, bought it for um, three ninety-nine. I think it cost me like seven ninety-nine when it was new. <laughs> like, like I remember, Kiss Alive Two was another live album like that. It folded out, and there was a booklet inside, and right. like, it was crazy stuff. So I'm, I'm, you know, yeah, little by little, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be judicious about it, though. I don't want to just reacquire everything I used to own. I want to try and acquire stuff that I'm actually going to put on the player and listen to. Right. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going too nuts, but, uh, but I have probably twenty LPs again. Mm. Maybe, maybe a little bit more than that. That's cool. So yeah, we we were uh, when we were away last week. It was you know a family wedding, so there's a whole bunch of people there, and uh, we got into the conversation. My kids love when I start with the you know when I was your age, uh, <laughs> and and we got into one of those conversations, and then I pointed to my mom and I said you know when when grandma was you know a kid, there wasn't even a such thing as TV, <laughs> and they were like <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> no, they don't believe me when I tell them stuff like that. They'll be like, "No, you're kidding, Daddy." She was, she was like, "Yeah, there wasn't TV, and we didn't even always have a radio." Mm. Now, luckily, my daughter's familiar with that because one of the things uh, I have uh, satellite radio, and the the channel that's on constantly is Radio Classics. So we're we're listening to like Jack Benny and the Lone Ranger and Green Hornet and stuff. And I ex okay. I explained to her, "Hey, you know this." You know, and they always say, and you know, this episode from 1946 is, and this was the entertainment back then. Yeah, you you hope that they listen to it and they develop an appreciation for, you know, not only just 
to enjoy it, listening to it, but also just for kind of the historical aspect of it and everything. And yeah, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Yeah, and no, at least that's what I found with my kids. Some some she, stuff they they're like, oh, that's so cool, it's so old, blah blah blah. And other stuff, it's like, Dad, could you turn this old crap off? <laughs> well, nice. like I said, she's almost nine. Uh, in about four years, we'll see how the attitude is. Yeah, well, mine mine are coming up towards the late teen years now. So my my son has my son has less than three months of teenager teenagerhood left. So he's he's coming back your way then. <laughs> He's pretty good though when it comes to this kind of stuff. He, he's, you know, if I tell him give give something a shot, he does. All right, so we should get going though, because it's already almost eleven o'clock, and I have work tomorrow. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> so, <clears throat> hello everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spataro, and I was expecting a very full house, but there is still only three of us. Only it's not the three you used to. I am joined today by Mr. Gene Hendricks. Hi, how's it going? Good, thank you. Thanks for coming aboard. No problem. <laughs> and after a lengthy absence, during which we've probably planned about five times for him to come on the show, but it <laughs> never worked out, I have Mr. Jim Dietz back with us again. Hello, it's not for not, for not wanting to. And man, you spent so much on all this catering, you really were expecting a big crowd, huh? <laughs> well, you know, I, I heard that you really like the kippers and eggs. These shrimp puffs are excellent. They, they have just the right <laughs> amount of, of, of flour to water uh, mixture. <laughs> just the right amount of puff. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, since I got you guys on, and we haven't had either of you on the show for a while, I'm just curious to throw out to you what's... Uh, what, what have you been doing by way of old comics of late? Uh, well, I've, I've been bouncing around either going through uh, stuff on Marvel Unlimited, uh, which is probably the best money I've ever spent, <laughs> going through the old Incredible Hulk uh, from uh, Bill Manlo and uh, Sal Buscema. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, when Bruce Banner had, the, had control of the Hulk, which was back when I first started reading comics. So it's interesting seeing that progress again. Uh, Or I'll uh, jump over and uh, read some All-Star Squadron because I'm trying to read that, then listen to the episode of uh, Tales of the Just Society of America. I love All-Star Squadron. It's like that and the Defenders are the only two comics I've complete runs of. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm missing a handful of my Defenders run that I've been going after lately. And I've found of late that I'm actually looking to divest myself of basically all of my post... Not all of, most of my post-crisis stuff. Mm-hmm. Just just because I'm taking up so much space with that stuff that, that I don't really have as, the same affection for as I do the older stuff. And the only things I'm looking to acquire nowadays are basically pre-crisis stuff and that would include you know i'm looking to complete my run of the defenders mostly mostly marvel bronze age stuff looking to complete Mm -hmm. my run of that looking to complete you know marvel premiere marvel spotlight those series Uh, but it's been actually fun because i'm looking to do that but i'm not looking to break the bank to do it so i'm popping into stores and i'm constantly looking for books for you know a dollar two dollars in that range and it's amazing. Sometimes I find them, and then you feel like this sense of satisfaction when you do. And other times, like when I was recently in Florida, 
I go to the store and I look and I find books in that era that are not particularly special, but are marked up to like thirty nine dollars a book, forty dollars a book, and wow. I just don't get it. <laughs> it's a tourist trap. That's why. Yeah, when I moved out to where I am now, I got rid of all, almost all my floppies, uh, except for like uh, some runs I had that I didn't want to get rid of, because I got to the point where I was taking them out and reading them, and I was afraid of degrading them as I read them, like stuff mm-hmm. like like my Claremont Burn run and my Claremont uh, Cockrum run on X Men or my you know, my Burn FF and stuff. So I went digital on a lot of stuff, and I went Omnibuy digital, and then I started collecting uh, Treasuries and uh, Marvel I love Mag- Treasuries. And Marvel magazines too. So, like, I've been doing that for four or five years now, and I've, I've got like almost forty or fifty of the Treasury and the Collector's Editions between DC and Marvel. And I found a lot of really cool uh, Marvel magazines. You know, they were kind of like when I was a kid in the seventies. They were like the Forbidden Fruit. That was like the Adult Hulk magazine. I wasn't allowed mm-hmm. to read that, or you know, <laughs> ooh, and Savage Sword of Conan has boobies in it. I can't read that because you know, <laughs> that was why we read mind. it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's the Forbidden Fruit. So like, I find them all now at like a dollar, two dollars a piece. And like you're saying with you, you know, I'm not looking to break the bank on them, but I do find them every now and again pretty cheap, and they sure are fun to go uh, check out. And some of that art's just fantastic. Ernie Chan and uh, John Buscema, and even some you know Barry Windsor Smith and the Conan mm-hmm. stuff. And and plus, it was like a starting ground for a lot of really weird ideas and and stories that didn't fit really any, in any other book in Marvel at that point. So. Stuff like Bizarre I, Adventures and Marvel Preview. Oh, yeah, yeah. Nice. There's a lot of good stuff in those. Yeah. I've I found that, though, like the not looking to break the bank thing has a dual purpose because not only does it save me money, which is nice, and, you know, and I do want to do that because I don't want to spend too much money on my hobby, but there's also this so much greater sense of satisfaction when you find something at a good price. And, and you add it into the collection as opposed to, you know, saying, well, this is what it goes for, so I'll just spend that. Right. Uh, you I know, mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I could find these magazines on eBay like 20 or 30 bucks a pop, but when I find them at the flea market for a dollar a piece and they're reader copies, that's what I'm looking for anyway. I'm not looking for something to, you know, to slab and to sell later or whatever. I'm just looking for something to read. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we've had these slab discussions here a few oh, times. Oh, I didn't and... mean to bring, you know. <laughs> no, no, no. It's just, you know, my position on it is, People are free to do whatever they want, but I, I don't think I would. I don't think I would ever slab a book. But do, it came up in conversation because in the last year or so, both Scott and Bill have been given books at, on separate occasions that were slabbed. Mm. And the question is, do you crack open the slab to appreciate the book? And ultimately, while I am not a person who would get a book slabbed, I would not crack it open. I'd say if it's already been slabbed, I would leave it because. The things that you, you know, the books that you have, the two books we were talking about, are both things that you have access to digitally already anyway. So why, right. you know, why would why would you degrade the quality at this point? Because those are books that were, you know, older and potentially going to turn to dust if you're not careful. Right. So that's my position on it. I, I think they both fell on the side of they'd rather crack it open. It's like if I could somehow score myself a copy of Amazing Fantasy 15. I'm never opening the book and reading it. I'm just thrilled to yeah. own it. Right. Right. See, I did, well, I, I don't want too far down the digression or whatever, but I, I a few cons back, whatever, I picked up the Captain Britain Omnibus, 
Because I wanted to read it. It's old Alan Moore and Alan Davis working together and really cool stuff that, you know, early Alan Moore that not a lot of people read. And I I was going to do a reread not too recently, but somebody hit me to the fact it's, like, really, like, out of print and and rare. So now I'm afraid to read it because I might end up selling it. I switched to Omnibus to begin with from floppies because I'm having the same problem now. There is that fine line of, of you bought it to appreciate it, not to just pack it away. On the other hand, you you hate to take something of value and, and kill the value. Right, especially if you can find it on digital. Yeah. And then, you know, like the you know, the books I have that have you know, the higher sticker prices, like I think of my copy of Giant Size X Men number one. Mm. Uh before it was what it is now, I probably read it two hundred times. So it definitely didn't get the let me just you know treat this with kid gloves and you know board it and and make sure it stays in you know near mint condition. So you know it's it's a well loved copy at this point, unfortunately. Yeah, but that's your original copy, right? That's yeah. the one you bought, bought when you were a kid. Bought off the newsstand. Yeah, see. So it ha- it has it definitely has a sentimental value to that. Right. Uh, it's, it's, but there's that fine line between being a collector and being a uh, an, an appreciator, right? And, like, yeah. and you make you made a really good point. A lot of people come at the hobby all different ways and want to do all different things with their books, and I think that's cool. Whatever you want to do is great, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I don't so, have any problem with people who if you want to slab everything and stuff. hang it up, that's fine. You know, if you want to read everything and break it out of the slab, that's cool too. You know. It's, it's like certain, you know, I have uh, a curio cabinet in my living room with all sorts of things in it. And my thought has always been the things that are in that cabinet aren't there ever because I think they're valuable. They're there because I think they're cool. Mm-hmm. So I don't worry about keeping it in the box. I take it out of the box. I put it on display. And if it turns out that something there is valuable, all the better. But that's not why it's there. Right. So it, it's, yeah. not an, it's not an investment. It's... And it's what you like. Exactly. So deal with it how you want to deal with it. It's what you like, not what I like, not what he likes. What you like. Right. So it's that's well, and and like you said, I, I think there's a lot of different schools of thought on how to go about that. And more power to everybody. Do you know? Do what you choose. And you know, these these are hobbies that we love doing. And uh, I, you know, if somebody has different ways of attacking it. I'm just happy that there's more people involved in the hobby because mm-hmm. well. that just you know. That's that's why there are bookstores around and flea markets and cons and all that because there's enough people who love doing this stuff. Yeah, well, right now, I mean, there's a giant nerd quake in San Diego going on as we record this. That's right. Yeah, and uh, I've never been to. This. Have you ever gone to San Diego? I uh, know I have not. No, me neither. <laughs> I've done I've... the New York con the last I don't know maybe six or seven years somewhere around there maybe even a little more I'm not even sure how many now. Uh, and and even that, you know, like I enjoy it every year, but it's just so crowded. Yeah, I I've been to the New York Con once, and that was enough. I mean, anytime I have to stand for ten minutes just to move two feet, uh, it's it's a little too much for me. I was the last New York Con I was at was the one where they had the Avengers uh, teaser. And they had like all the actors there from the Avengers before mm-hmm. Avengers came out. It was it 2011? I guess. Right. But but yeah, that was enough of a human uh, uh, tidal wave that uh, you know I've been scared to go back. <laughs> I, th- I think I was there that year as well. I didn't go to that actual event, but I was yeah. at 
the con that year, but that and, would be before you and I knew each other, so right. I wouldn't have had the... Uh, and, and I had a great time. Don't get me wrong. I'm glad I went. Like, I went 20, 2008, 2009, and, and 2011. I had a great time every single time I went. I just It was a blast, and it was very much in, you know, a uh, multimedia overload for the entire time I was there, you know, but I mean, not, not only going to the con, but being in New York City again after, you know, I, I lived there when I was a, you know, a, a young punk teenager back in the day and stuff. So, I mean, it was, the whole thing was just sensory overload the whole time. I had a great time, but I see San Diego and it looks like that, but like much, much worse. And, you know, people waiting in line for three weeks to get into Hall H and, uh, you know, fighting, you know, fist fights over exclusive action figures <laughs> And Mile High bowed, bowed out this year. I don't know if you guys read about that. I did see that, yes. After they, 44 years. They said it was too much money, essentially. 18 grand for the real yeah. estate on the con floor for the weekend. I found that at New York Con, the place where I enjoy being the most, and one of the reasons is because it's less crowded, but also for just exactly what it is, I like being down in Artist Alley. Right. Uh-huh. And I find being a slightly older <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna use that descriptor I don't know how accurate it is but I'll go with that uh, being a slightly older fan my tastes often run towards the slightly older creators and often they're not appreciated by the young crowd and they're much more available and easy to come over and talk to anyway mm-hmm. so it's it's like everything just falls into place nicely there uh, I think about a, a few years ago when I was there and uh, I got to spend some real decent time talking to, taking pictures with, and I bought a sketch from each of them, uh, Herb Trimpey and Rich Buckler. Oh, wow. Very and, nice. Uh, you know, they've both since passed on, and I'm, you know, I'm just thrilled that I had that chance to get those things from them and talk to them and, you know, get to know them a little bit. What did you? Uh, what did you? Have, what did you have them draw? If you don't mind me asking, was it a whole? Uh, I got I got head sketches from both of them. I didn't know, you know, I, I oh, okay. didn't have the money to get anything too elaborate. Right. right. Uh, but I got a, a Hulk sketch from Trimpey. Of course. And the thing from Rich Buckler. Oh, oh very nice. 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 Wow. Yeah. I, I, have you ever? Have you guys ever gone down to Heroes Con? No. 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 I I, I heartily recommend that, especially if you want one-on-one time with creators. Because it's much, it's much more relaxed. It's very comic focused. Uh, all the creators are there, but like none of the uh, publishers are. So there's not like a Marvel or DC area or booth or whatever. But like, you know, Matt Fraction will be there, and uh, Gail Simone will be there. And like, I share an elevator with Jim Steranko in the hotel a couple times oh. <laughs> when I was there last time. Um, was was he wearing his cool white suit? He was wearing. It looked like one of those shark skin blazers. Uh-huh. And one of those Miami blue uh, shirts underneath it. Ah. Uh, but well, Jim, I, Jim Jim Storanko is, if nothing else, stylish. No doubt, dude. I love to hear him tell stories. But like the whole con is centered around a hotel and a hotel bar, and the cons the floor, and it's all very, like I said, very comic focused. All the creators are there that you you know pretty much want to you know, meet or talk to or get sketches from or autographs from or whatever. And it's just very relaxed. And plus, the food is great in that city. So. I definitely recommend Heroes Con if you want like a comic centric con that isn't you know isn't giant like San Diego or New York you know but it's definitely like fun. I've I've heard before that that is a good show and I wouldn't mind getting there, uh, but you know the <laughs> the time and the budget don't always allow. Yeah, I went I went last year and I just skipped this year. So it was a shame. There's yeah, going to well, be a show here on Long Island uh, in just a couple of weeks, and it looks to be like a real small you know. 
totally comic centric show, and it's you know like the old hotel shows. I think yeah. it's mm. just the admission is like five bucks. So oh, cool! I, I figure you know I'm already on Long Island. It's not that long of a commitment to drive over there, and uh, it's five dollars, which is also not much of a commitment. So I'm going to give it a shot. Sweet. Worst comes to worst, it's not so hot, and I leave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're bucks. we're thinking of actually going to uh, Baltimore Comic Con this year. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I've heard that's also a, a nice laid back show, and it's only two hours from us. So that's we, not bad. No, cool. so we. I think we're gonna head down. Uh, I'm thinking maybe uh, get a room for the night rather than two hours down. Get spend all day there and two hours back because I'm the one that has to do it. So. Yeah. <laughs> and no, are, they, are they doing the Atlantic City Con again? I do not know uh, if. If they were going to do it, it would have been in May. So, okay. uh, that one, the the problem with that one, we went the first year and it was not run well at all. So I was a little leery about going back to that. Uh, I mean, we had we were talking to vendors there that had stuff stolen because no one was checking IDs and during the setup period, you could just wander in. Mm. Didn't matter, you know, whether you were supposed to be there or not, and some people lost hundreds of dollars worth of merchandise because people wandered in off the street, grabbed it, and wandered right back out. But I mean, uh, Baltimore. I checked the guest list, and it's Walter and Louise Simonson are going to be oh, there. So the best. I think I'm gonna have to head down, <laughs> bring a few comics with me. They were at a Super Show 2010. They were the best. They were so nice. So, I mean, well, we, we definitely have three people here who are still comic show <laughs> enthusiasts. Yes. Yeah. Which I think some people lose their tastes for it as they get older, but I guess, <laughs> I guess we are different. <laughs> but uh, we might as well start jumping into the books, because we've been on for a while and haven't looked at a book yet. Oh, we have books to go over? Okay. Well, <laughs> well, well, oh, is that what we by, do the show? Oh, wow. By we, I mean the two of you. Yes. <laughs> <coughs> I, I get to Paul. be the bookless one today. <laughs> All right, so, where do we want to start? Well, the traditional start is on the Marvel, so... Well, then I will take it away. <clears throat> All right, this time our Marvel is going to be Thor, issue number 391. A number you will never, ever see in comics ever again. Cover date on this one is May of 1988. The on sale date is January 26th of 1988. Thank you to Mike's Amazing World of Comics for information. Story by Tom DeFalco. Pencils by Ron Friends. Inks by Brett Breeding. Letters Joe Rosen. Colors Christy Scheel. And the editor is Ralph, I am not the Karate Kid, Machio. On the cover... We have Thor standing on I-beam, swinging his hammer at the mongoose while Spider-Man watches. The text reads, Call him mayhem. Call him mongoose. And, <laughs> and it had to happen, guest starring the amazing Spider-Man. Did it no, really have to happen? I don't think it did, really. They you know? it did. Does that costume the mongoose has have to happen? <laughs> 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 I'm sorry, well, you know. It's like it, saber. It, it's like somebody took the remnants of Sabretooth's last costume and sewed them inside out and put them on someone else. It's it's like they <laughs> did that and, and somehow combined it with the Vixen's costume. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> and check out that the girder that that Thor is standing on. Mm -hmm. Like that that arrow seems like it's hiding some sketchy uh, perspective there. 
Yeah, well... <laughs> it's like the girders going in. I just I, we, I'm sure we'll be talking about the uh, the layout of this building later on, because uh, I work in the construction industry, and yeah, there's oh. some problems there. <laughs> I didn't realize we had an expert. <laughs> well, on the inside, our title is The Madness of Mongoose. And we open to find Spidey swinging through the city, thinking about how good it feels to be in his old red and blue outfit, as the editor's note tells us to see Amazing Spider-Man number 300. Everything's going great for Peter at the moment. He's married to Mary Jane, and they've moved into a luxury condo thanks to her modeling career taking off. He's so happy that he doesn't even notice a tingling from his spider sense as he swings past the Biltwell Hotel. Inside the hotel, we find the staff delivering yet another room service meal to room number 310, whose occupant has apparently been there for months without ever leaving the room. Inside said room, we find a bald man with big, sharp, pointy teeth saying that his selsmograph has indicated that his target has returned to the city. That's technical jargon if I've ever heard it. Elsewhere... Four, in his guise as Sigurd Jarlson, is walking down the street towards his apartment building. He finds that the building has been leveled to make way for a new Toys R Bucks store. Thor momentarily regrets not staying in Asgard, since now that the Rainbow Bridge has been broken, he can't return. He quickly pushes those thoughts away and calls his old boss, Jerry Sapristi, and gets a construction job. I just want to say that real quick, this this one panel here where he's kind of uh, doing exposition and thought balloons mm -hmm. with the rainbow bridge like draw, drawn like over his head with the Kirby dots and all that stuff. That's pretty, I love that panel. That's pretty uh, awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's nice. That's a mm -hmm. nice way to, to get you in the mood for that the cosmic end of the things. Right, right. He looks to have like a Clark Kent face though if you remember <laughs> yeah. the here. Yeah. Well, that's that's actually going back to one of the Simonson issues when Thor originally got the Sigurd Jarlson identity. He was on the Shield Hel Helicarrier, and is you know dressed in normal clothes, pulls hair back in ponytail, put on the glasses. He walks out out the door and runs into and knocks over a black-haired reporter with glasses in a blue suit, who looks at him and says, "Hey, that guy looks familiar." Nah, couldn't be him. Yeah, I remember hearing about that. I yeah. don't remember if I've ever actually seen it, but I definitely heard about that. Yeah, it's it's a stealth crossover that Simonson did. It was fun. Anyway, back to the story. On the job site, Thor meets the building's architect, Eric Masterson, and the building's eccentric owner, Aloysius R. Jamesley. Is it Aloysius? Is it? I don't know. <laughs> I, I think it's uh, I think, one. Of, I think it's a cat. I remember as a Catholic boy there being a Saint Aloysius. I think that's the way it's spelled. I think that's correct. I, I will bow to your superior knowledge, Aloysius R. James. I'm glad. I, I'm glad I learned something from all those years of Catholic school. <laughs> <laughs> Across the street, the bald man from before has put on his wonderful mongoose outfit and followed the readings to his target. Now Thor is up working on the high steel, and the mongoose attacks him, stating that he has been selected as the mongoose's prey. Thor charges at him, but mongoose dodges, and Thor falls out of the building. Since he doesn't have Mjolnir, he can't fly and might just go splat on the street. Luckily, a passing Spider-Man saves him and puts him down on the ground. 
As Spider-Man confronts the mongoose, Thor heads to the bag he left in Jerry's office and retrieves Mjolnir. After a quick change of clothes, Thor joins the fight, saving a gas Spider-Man from the Dracula treatment. Thor knocks the mongoose down as Spider-Man saves the annoying James Lee. As Mongoose tries to get away, Thor catches him with Mjolnir, and then Spider-Man grabs him and flips him back onto the building. Not wanting to fight both heroes, Mongoose runs down underneath the building. He tricks Thor into knocking out the support pillars, though, and gets away. As the building starts to come down, Eric pushes Jerry out of the way of some falling debris, only to be hit himself. Thor, knowing that the building collapse will kill many people, holds up the structure while Spider-Man repairs the supports with I-beams and webbing. The two heroes walk out to discover Eric has been badly hurt. Thor completely paralyzes him, I mean, flies him to a hospital as Spider-Man... <laughs> <laughs> as Spider-Man realizes that he never turned on his automatic camera, so he has no pictures of the fight. Meanwhile, back in Asgard, Balder the Brave, the regent of Asgard, is looking for Thor and fearing him dead. Asgard has been ravaged by invaders over the past several weeks, and apparently they can't mount a defense without Thor. Baldur decides to have the Grand Vizier send him to Earth to find Thor, but he's been beaten to the punch. In the Vizier's laboratory, the Warriors Three have decided it's not the ruler's job to go in search of Thor. Fandral and Hogan have wrestled for the honor of going, and since Fandral lost, Hogan steps into the Quantum Leap Accelerator and vanishes. To be Hoping to right the wrongs. <laughs> <laughs> so, you may be wondering why I picked a mongoose issue. Well, I didn't pick a mongoose issue. I picked the first appearance of Eric Masterson, who goes on later to take oh. take over the Thor identity and become his own hero, Thunderstrike, before actually being killed and staying dead. One of the very few in comics. Yeah. Didn't it? Wasn't there something where they were reviving him not that long ago? I thought. Well, I there, thought there was something, but there, I could be wrong. There was a second Thunderstrike, but that was Eric's son. Okay, that's what it was. Yes. Yeah, I remember Boosiak brought him that. back for his like Legion of the Undead Heroes or whatever, and during his run with uh, with uh, Perez there uh, after Heroes Reborn and stuff. But yeah, he was definitely still dead then. So. Yeah. Yeah, and he's stayed dead, which is, you know, very unusual nowadays. I mean, even Bucky's back. There's only a handful. Excuse me. But, uh... Yeah, you know... I read through this, and I'm... I'm as I was... We were talking before we started to record, uh, Gene and I, and I was saying that I'm not that familiar with this era of Thor, because I haven't read that many issues in it. Um... And I know you're absolutely not... I, to say not a fan would be an understatement of the Don Blake persona. Hmm. But the whole... Ugor, what is it? Sigurd Jarlson? Sigurd Jarlson. J's are pronounced like Y's. <laughs> That's right. Uh, that whole thing just seems like... Really? Yeah, that was... You know, it, it, it's taking the Clark Kent thing of putting glasses on and fooling people to like a whole nother level. <laughs> well, that's see that that was one of the interesting things with Simonson because he went through this whole thing. He got rid of Don Blake, and then Thor said, "Well, I still want to live amongst humans." 
and he did this whole secret identity thing and worked started to work a construction job for Jerry, who happens to be Nick Fury's cousin. Well, Jerry and his family figure out that Sigurd is really Thor. And it's not a really? huge... What, what Sherlock Holmes kind of people do they must be? It, it does not take them very long to do it. You know? <laughs> that so, giant muscle-bound blonde yeah. guy over there? <laughs> who, all, who always is carrying this bag around with him, who just, and it just happens to... No one else can pick up the bag. <laughs> yeah, but it... You know, it's... It's something that's like nodded and winked at. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, you're you're a regular guy, sure, yeah. <laughs> and they even mentioned the one construction worker is uh, mentions that this is the dead of winter. It's snowing out, and he looks over and says, "Wow, that new guy, he's he's working out uh, in a t-shirt in this weather. He must have been born in the North Pole." So it's <laughs> there, there's real obvious stuff with I it. I remember, I remember a sketch on SNL with uh, the Rock. Uh, as Clark Kent, yes, mm-hmm. and he was like, you know, his shirt was just a little too small. His, you know, it was obvious he was Superman because he was so huge. Um, you know, wearing, you know, same deal here, I guess, with Thor. I mean, yeah, it's really. a, lot of, a lot of suspension of disbelief there. This this is almost at the level of the thing putting on a pair of glasses and people not knowing his secret identity, <laughs> right? I mean, Thor is, you know, if nothing else, he's huge. He's got that long blonde hair. I mean, who's who are you fooling here, really? Yeah, they, you you look at some of them, like on the the panel where he's you first see him and he's walking down the street and the guy in the the trench coat's looking at him like, okay, th- that's weird. <laughs> the guy in the trench coat's probably a big dude too. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but he's still only you know up to Thor's chin. Um, I I would have. I you know sometimes the explanations aren't really reasonable, but I'll accept them. If they'd said, "Oh, you know, the enchantress put some sort of spell on him that it makes it hard to figure out who he is" or something like that, I'd be like, "Okay, I could buy that." But just to have him put on you know jeans and a pair of glasses and and put his hair in a ponytail, yeah, no, not doing it for me. Yeah, yeah, and they uh, DeFalco and friends get rid of that fairly quickly. In fact, that that all starts here. Because eventually Eric gets hurt in this issue, and it he ends up becoming lame in the fact that he can't walk correctly, not in his characteristic. <laughs> <laughs> and so he has to walk with a cane, and eventually it it transpires that Thor and Eric merge in much the same way that Thor was Donald Blake, except now it's actually two distinct personalities. Uh the best comparison would be Rick Jones and Captain Marvel. Right, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, but and then he, but then he ended up getting like his own hammer and being his own guy, right? Apart right. from Thor. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, what hosted oh, Stormbringer, something like that. No, or is uh, that is that a Beta Ray Bills? That's hammer. Beta Ray Bills. Beta Ray Bills. Yeah, uh, Eric actually the, got a mace, and it was named Thunderstrike. Okay. And that's where he got his heroic name from. But yeah, it's it, the the DeFalco Friends run is like we were talking before. My second favorite era of Thor, the first being the Simonson era. But this, they have a nice long run. They got some really good stories in here. They introduce Eric Masterson, who, when Thor's soul gets uh, locked away somewhere. Eric is now in control of both his own body and the Thor body, and he's 
doing his best to convince everyone, no, he's the real Thor, but he doesn't have the speech pattern, or he doesn't have the memories and everything. So it's it's fun reading that both here and in Avengers, how, how it gets handled. I'm looking over this story. First of all, I just want to say I love the artwork in this story. Oh, yeah. Fr- Friends and uh, Breeding really brought it in this issue as far as I'm concerned. Oh, yeah, it looks good. And uh, I, I, I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm just going through it again. And uh, the scene when, when Thor is falling off the building, I just think it's kind of cool. You know, he's, he's falling and he's saying, I don't have my hammer. You know, and, and from this height, you know, even with my abilities, it could be fatal. But uh, what does he say? But I cannot lose hope. I will not fall victim to despair. I am Thor, God of Thunder, and I will find a way to save himself, which is when Spider-Man swings in and saves him. At the point Spider-Man saves him, it based on the artwork, he's probably about 15 to 20 feet in the air, ready mm-hmm. to go splash. Yeah. <laughs> and meanwhile, he's telling himself, I'm going to find a way to save myself. And damn it, as I was reading it, I was thinking, yes, he will. He's Thor, <laughs> of course. It's his book. <laughs> well, besides that. <laughs> but I'm expecting, okay, you know, they, they're going to come up with some clever thing that he does, or something that's re- you know that he's going to reach out and grab, or somehow the hammer's going to come and you know, I didn't, I didn't think of the Spider-Man solution as I was first reading it, but uh, I just think it's kind of cool to have that kind of, you know, thing in the story. Of course, by the time you'd have all those thoughts, you would already be splattered. You yeah, know, you don't fall for that long. Yeah, the building is not that tall. <laughs> it's pretty tall, though. I mean, if you look at it, it's, uh, it's up there, but and this is where my construction background just it, it it's nagging me. Buildings are not made this way. <laughs> they do not... You don't get all the steel and then all the siding and no. You, it starts at the bottom, you go with the steel and concrete then the siding comes on then you put the windows in and it progressively goes up. This is nothing but I-beams and wood. Are you trying to tell me that a superpowered teenager who made his own webbing fluid and some girders could not stop a falling building? Are you trying to tell me that? No, I could. No, they they could. But what happens in an hour when the webbing dissolves? We will, the, the comic will be over by then. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're on to quicksand next. Yes, I know. <laughs> that is, you know what? I, I didn't, it didn't occur to me to think about when the webbing dissolves because it does have a shelf life of an hour. Yeah, that's the first thing I saw. Is like, oh, he's got these webbed together. Uh, you better get some welders in there real quick. Like a whole bunch, and even then, I mean, the structural integrity can't be good. No, it's but then again, uh, the the owner was going to tear it down anyway because it didn't work with his artistic vision anymore. This this is a man who has more money than God, apparently, knowing how much these things cost. He's got the Jerry curl going. <laughs> uh, he he's the one aspect of the story that I just didn't care for. Actually, it just it was a little too over the top, unrealistic to me. <laughs> But but he knows how to fight. As long as, if Spider Man had just listened to him, he would have been yeah. fight would have been over. Yeah, I I don't remember what happened with with that character. I don't know if he stayed around a while or not. But yeah, it's it's just I think that it it comes out as being trying too hard. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do what do you think of the character, the mongoose? <laughs> Uh, I think he's seeing cobras everywhere. 
I think somebody saw, uh, you know, Jaws on Moonraker or something and <laughs> decided, oh, decided to mix him with the, the kangaroo <laughs> and some, <laughs> some, some cast-offs from Sabretooth's costume and voila, the mongers. Yeah, I, I know it's a tangent, but the, te- the kangaroo gained his ability by watching the kangaroos in Australia and figuring out how they leap. I thought he got power from that intense bowl haircut. <laughs> I, I, you know, it it feels to me reading this that uh, that they had some bigger thoughts in mind for him. That DeFalco was gonna, you know, was planning to to give him some sort of extended backstory that was going to be interesting as to why he's got this vendetta against Thor, but that apparently we never got that. Yeah, well, uh, it it looks like he was hired. And uh, later on, I don't remember all the intervening steps, but later on, Thor ends up going against the High Evolutionary. So I believe that the Mongoose was sent by the High Evolutionary for whatever reason to either uh, get something from, like a cell sample from Thor or to lure Thor to Mount Wondegore. I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure. I don't remember, but that's getting towards the point where uh, Thor and Masterson merge. So it's it's like a, a few issues before that, or it maybe even like an issue or two right before that. So it, yeah. it, this does pay off eventually. One, one of the things in this issue, though, is, and so if somebody has different information, please feel free to correct me on this, because I'm a little confused. <clears throat> when Spider-Man meets the Mongoose at, at whatever, the fir- for the first point, uh, there's a, a, an editor's note, and I'm looking for it as, as, as I'm saying it, yeah, where uh, the Mongoose thinks to himself, the fool doesn't realize that our paths crossed once before. And the editor's note says, it happened in Amazing Spider-Man 283. So I dug out Amazing Spider-Man 283, which is an issue where Spider-Man is fighting the Absorbing Man and Titania. Uh, we have a subplot with the Hobgoblin going on in it. And at one point in it, there's a... I'm just trying to go to that... Uh, there's a scene in an airport where uh, where there's a, a guy wearing the, the the stereotypical fedora and overcoat, and all you see is a shadowy face with the gleaming dagger-like teeth underneath it, and he's in it for two panels and never meets Spider-Man. So I'm not sure what they're talking about, about th- that they met before. I assume these two characters may have met up sometime after this, uh, but they didn't meet up in this issue unless I'm wrong, and I don't think I am. Now, according to the, the Marvel Wiki, it says that this is Mongoose's first appearance appears in Shadow only. Uh, so, yeah, it sounds like he saw Spider-Man, maybe? But no, the, the two never met. From And he doesn't even see him, because while, while he's doing that, well, I guess he sees him from afar, because he's in the airport, and... Uh, yeah, I guess they're I guess they're fighting in an airport, but they're not like right up against each other. The Amazing Spider-Man issue was just uh, cover dated December of 1986, and the Thor issue is May of 1988. So we got an awful long gap 
between a two-panel shadowy appearance of this character and actually introducing him. Mm. I'm not sure exactly... Actually, I should just take a quick look to see who wrote the Spider-Man story. Is this DeFalco also? It's it, the character it's, De, it's DeFalco and friends on the Spider-Man issue. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah, so they probably had plans for him in Spider-Man, never got to do it, and then they brought the character back in Thor. Uh, but they're acting as if he has a backstory that he doesn't really have. It, it's it's probably one of those things where he has a backstory in DeFalco's mind. Yeah, but it never got yeah. onto the page. You know, it's like uh, my my wife tells this story about her sister when they were younger, about how her sister wrote this story as like, okay, well, suddenly the character's in the the backyard, and oh, well, how how they get to the backyard? Oh, the secret passage. <laughs> you didn't put that in the story. <laughs> you know, it's it it's all well and good to have it in your head, but if it's not on paper, no one's gonna know about it. And just the answer to every question like that is Deus Ex Machina. <laughs> That's it. Or Thor Ex Machina. <laughs> there you go. Interchangeable. Yep. <laughs> uh, overall, like I said, the biggest thing for this, I, I enjoyed the issue reading it, but the biggest thing for me is I, I really like the artwork in it. It just really seems to pop over and over again. Yeah. And considering when it came out, it's super clean for that style. I mean, that house style at that time was all that very, you know, kind of sketchy, Jim Lee-influenced and image style. You know what I mean? This is much cleaner than that. It's much um, much easier to read, you know, than that. Mm-hmm. Less distracting. I really appreciate that a lot about it. Yeah, it. I mean, really, it looks, it looks a lot like uh, John Romita Sr. influence mm-hmm. on this. Which oh, yeah. is that—that's right in my wheelhouse for the my preferred style of art. So that's why I, I always liked uh, Ron Friends, especially when it was with Brett Breeding, because they they always had this n- wonderful throwback to the early '80s kind mm-hmm. of style, which that's it's just gorgeous as far as I'm concerned. I agree that that clear, like just good visual storytelling, you know. And that's the thing. While I appreciate that some specific stories require a different style of art for you know purposes of setting a mood or whatever uh i always come back to my preference is this style of art unless you have a really strong you know story reason to go with the you know to go with different styles or if you have an artist like say you know a a Neil Adams or somebody like that or you know Gene Colan I think is a great example of it whose individual style is very different from that uh, but it's just so good on unto itself that there's no reason for him to change unless you have that this is always going to be pr- my preferred style mm-hmm. this 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 clean artwork not necessarily you know this team you know the, this team is great and they did a great job in this issue but uh, you know the the John Burns, the George Perez's, the John Romita's, that style of artwork is always going to be my pre- my preference. Neil Adams, and then uh, especially when he was at the peak of his creativeness, Jack Kirby. Oh yeah. Well, well that kind of like dynamic storytelling style. I mean, like you said, it has that thread all the way back through you know to Kirby and Toth and uh, and you know Will Eisner and uh, you know. I, I, I've always uh, I've always really appreciated this style all the way up to like you know 
you know more modern practitioners of that style like you know Darwin Cook or you know even, mm-hmm. even Mike Allred although his stuff is a little more on the trippy side of that yeah his his is definitely more stylistic right I think. right but uh, you know and and we're going to talk about this a little more when we get to your book Jim because this is a thought I was having when I was reading it earlier but with the Marvel house style it it felt to me uh, that you know Kirby basically created the house style in in the 60s and then towards the end of his run at Marvel uh, and then even beyond his stay at Marvel after he went over to DC the other artists with limited exceptions were encouraged to emulate his style as the house style Uh, and I I think specifically of when John Romita actually drew some issues of the Fantastic Four after uh, after Kirby left he said he he lifted a lot of Kirby poses and things because he was being encouraged to be as Kirby-like as possible to create a sense of continuity for the readers. And I felt like that house style kind of developed over the years. It went from everybody trying to be Kirby to then kind of morphing a little bit into a Kirby slash Romita style. And then as Byrne and, and Perez became big, that you know, it kind of morphed a little further. Uh, and it wasn't until sometime in the 80s where I think the house style became a thing of the past and you know people embraced more their own individual styles. That's my take on it. I don't know if that jibes with what everybody else thinks about it. Uh, but I think I, this, this book fits that. I reread Age of Apocalypse not too long ago for a series of podcasts and it was very much a house style in the 90s of trying to emulate that image style. You know, that kind mm-hmm. of quote-unquote dark age style, you know. So, I mean, that, that house style, you know, mentality carried over even then, you know. So. Yeah, and I, I was not a fan when the house style became kind of a manga-esque thing. Yeah, mm. it was that too. Which is why, as we, going back, you see, the conversation always goes in a circle. That's why I'm just <laughs> sticking with bron- bronze and silver age books at this point in my life. <laughs> but uh, I don't know if, if you guys have any more comments on this or if you want to grade it. What do you think? Uh, I think we should probably get to grading, you know, just <laughs> move things along a little bit. All right, and so your book, Gene, you can lead us off. All right, uh, starting with the cover. Uh, cover's good. A little too much on on the wordy for me. I mean, you just showing Spider-Man's enough. You don't need the arrow pointing to him. Uh, <laughs> with, with his name written on it. Yeah. <laughs> uh Thor looks very Kirby here, especially in the face. Uh, but, you know, it's it's good. It would get my attention. I don't know how Mongoose suddenly got the power to fly, but whatever. Uh, I'm going to give the cover a B plus. It would get my attention, make me pick up the book, but it's just it's not quite there. Uh, story-wise, it's a setup issue, really. Thor has just come back from adventures in other realms... He's getting back onto Earth, and something's picking up. It's going to take him through the next several issues. So there's, it, it's it's a good setup issue. There's not really much of a conclusion to it. Uh, so I'm I'm going to give that probably a a B minus on the story. The art, however, as we were just talking about for the past twenty minutes, that's an A plus. That it, it is clean great way to to use camera angles and everything looks dynamic even when thor is just standing in the newsstand it looks like he's about to run off 
his his knees are bent. He he's going to do something. So it's and this is as I said my preferred style of art. Anatomy is spot on. Facial expressions are great. No one is ever just standing there. So A plus on the art. So uh, that I think that averages out to B plus A minus overall. Mm-hmm. Okay. What do you think, Jim? I give the cover a B. I mean, I see what you're saying about the uh, the, the Curry influence there. I also see like some Busema there and that kind of mm-hmm. pose that the Thor is, is going. And I also agree, you don't need if you see Spider-Man on the cover, you don't need a giant red arrow pointing to him saying, "Hey, look, it's Spider-Man." Uh, there are a lot of primary colors that work on this, and not a lot of you know gradient or whatever. It's just very clear, but but the action is easy to read, and you know the action lines are easy to follow. Um, it's very much, you know, and the, the uh, I, I do like, I, I really dig the black explosion uh, balloon there at the top. You know, call him mayhem, call him mongoose. You know, I, I didn't see we got, got the little TM on it, so I'll, I'll give the, the cover a B. Um, story, like you said, it's a setup for other things, kind of, it's almost like a done in one wrapped in a setup uh, um, shell, you know, like he has the, um, the ongoing story arcs that we can see coming in the next issues. But he also has the you know, confrontation with the mongoose and the guest appearance of Spider-Man. So I give that a straight B. It was it was very it was serviceable. It was, it was what it was. You know, it wasn't a blockbuster. It wasn't a classic, but it was a decent comic. I wouldn't have been disappointed if I plunked my seventy-five cents down back in the day on the story. Um, the artist in AL, Ron Friends is from here in Pittsburgh, and he's uh, <clears throat> a tremendous individual, really nice guy. And I've always been a big admirer of his art, way more than a lot of other people. He's not really one of the guys whose praises get sung a lot. But as you said, his art here is super clean, easy to read um, visually. He has some really cool stylistic choices here too, like the whole splash page, splash page panel of the, the the building, you know, coming down with just the the uh, the you know the word balloon of saying "I must do it," you know, uh, using a whole page for that. I thought it was a, an uh, interesting choice. You know, it's a good choice to kind of bring on the drama of that. You know, almost calling back that whole Kirby or not Kirby, the whole Ditko thing with Spider-Man being trapped under the building. You know. Mm, uh, right. from from the early in the amazing run um, so I love the art so I give the art an A so I guess that gives it it's either an A minus B plus overall average so alright I'm uh, I'm pretty much on board with you guys with the cover I'm, I'm at the B plus level on it as well uh, which Gene you were B plus on that right uh, I agree I'm totally with you on the getting rid of the arrow towards Spider-Man uh, I think if you if you eliminated that arrow, you could probably reposition Spider-Man and have him be a little bit bigger, even and and share you know share the cover a little bit more, which kind of eliminates the need to put his name. Uh, the thing that just jumps out at me is the stark white background. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking if they, you know they could have made a color choice there that might have made the the cover pop. I, I guess they're thinking the pop is in the uh, contrast between the white and the the you know the primary colors that are jumping out from it but i'm not a big fan of just stark backgrounds so i, I would have liked it if they had done something a little different there so i think it's a really solid cover i think all three characters look really good in it uh just you know just not quite to the iconic level the interior will go to the story i, I think you've hit it on the head it's it's a done in one and a setup because the story doesn't Sometimes when it, when an issue is all set up, the story is just disappointing because you don't really feel like you went anywhere. 
So this is giving us the action-adventure, it's giving us the battle, it's giving us a character that, again, I'd, I'd kind of like to know what the background is, what's going on, why is he, you know, why is he doing what he's doing, what are his powers, what is his power set exactly, because I'm not really too clear on it. Uh, I'm, I'm intrigued by him, and I'd like to see a little bit more, which I don't know if I ever will. Hmm. Uh, but it also gives you the stuff going on in Asgard that, you know, lets you know that, that there's more big stuff to come. So I think it's pretty well done, and I'm going to say a, a B-plus on the story as well. The art, um, I'm with you guys. It's either an A or an A-plus. Uh, I'm kind of on the fence on that one. I'm not 100% sure. I'm going to that page that you were talking about, Jim, the, the splash of the building. And on top of just the drama that it creates, I think it also gives you a little perspective on the size of this building compared to the buildings around it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's significantly taller. And you see all these people on the street. And looking at this, you realize if this building collapsed, most of them are probably going to be dead. So it, you know, it adds to the drama on several levels. And it's just, you know, just kind of really well laid out. The whole story is well laid out. The storytelling is good. You know, you, you could probably get away with not reading one word uh, balloon and still knowing pretty much what went on in this story. And it's not because the story isn't, you know, it doesn't have any depth. It's just because it's just so well laid out. So I, I think I'm going to go towards the A-plus level on it. I'm going I'm to err on the generous side hmm. uh, and go with A-plus. And overall, I'll give the book an A-minus. Good choice, G. Oh, thank you. I, I always enjoy this era, so I'm glad you guys liked it. So from Marvel 80s, we'll go to DC 70s. A little bit of a story behind this. I played a bit of a game on uh, Mike's Amazing World of Comics, which uh, if you've never been, you really should, because it's the best. Um, and I tried to go back and and see what the earliest comics I remember reading as a child were, you know, just from the covers, like if I had enough visual memory to do that. And I was able to trace back like the oldest Batman comic I'd ever read. And one of the oldest comics I could remember reading as a kid was the one I'm gonna, we're gonna talk about tonight, uh, Justice League number 123. Um, it's, uh, it came out in, October, uh, in uh, July of 1975. That would have made me about nine years old. And uh, <clears throat> cover price was a quarter, yay. Edited by Julius Schwartz. The title is Where on Earth Am I? And uh, two writers here. We got Carrie Bates and Elliot S. Magan, who are kind of the, you know, the young bucks uh, the, at, at DC at that point in the 70s. Uh, I found out later. Uh, and penciler Dick Dillon, who I kind of identified in a lot of ways with the Justice League because it was my first Justice League was the Satellite Era League uh, drawn by Dick Dillon. Uh, an inch by Frank McLaughlin with an Ernie Chan cover. Uh, another uh, 70s artist I think really doesn't get his due or his propers at all. Um, and the cover's kind of cool. It's got uh, both the uh, collected Justice League and Justice Society members running at an unnamed villain whose back is to the camera and uh, the villain says, come on superheroes, I'll take you all on empty-handed and alone. And uh, it's funny, if you look at the cover, I just wanted to mention before I forget, the further back you look at the, the figures, the more they're tilting to the right um, as they're running toward the camera. <laughs> I'm not sure why that is. Is, is that a political statement? <laughs> no, no, they're physically tilting to the right. Not metaphorically, not metaphorically, no. No, because no, Hawkman's towards the front. <laughs> yeah, so he's on the left. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we all know where his Who Who would have thought? <laughs> 
Um, so we get uh, page, uh, uh, roll call pages, which I also love from the old 70s comics. On the uh, left-hand side, we've got Batman, Black Canary, Aquaman, uh, Hawkman, Green Arrow, and Flash. And we should note this is the, the version, the pre-crisis version of Black Canary. Uh, roll call from the Justice Society of America. We've got the Robin with the weird hybrid suit that I never understood as a kid until much, much later why. And I still don't know why they had the suit. It was like a, like Batman's uniform, but with an R over the bat and a bright yellow cape with like a Doctor Strange type thing sticking out of the back of it, like a flip collar. It's kind of uh, that was yeah. also cut like a bat. It was crazy costume. Uh, I think it was just just a matter of trying to indulge some fantasy and let's change the costume and just make it different. Right, and, but yet you know, yet show his mentor and all of that. So I mean, it, like you, you said, you didn't understand it as a kid. I'm not sure I totally understand it now. Yeah, it's well, you know, it's it's still not as bad as Tyrock. I mean, come on. Anyway, <laughs> well, that, that was the '70s cut down to your navel opening. Yeah, exactly. With with booties, with elven booties. <laughs> um, we also have, from Justice Society. We also have Wildcat, Wonder Woman. Johnny Thunder, another hero I never understood as a kid. Uh, Our Man and, Mr. and Dr. Midnight. And the splash page shows the Injustice Society of America. This incarnation being, uh, let's see, we have the Shade, Huntress, Sportsmaster, the Gambler, the Wizard, and the Icicle. All around a new supervillain who we don't recognize quite yet in a very gaudy orange and red and silver costume. And uh, he's saying that he's about to become... He's the future master supervillain of three Earths. Uh, we then cut to Julius Schwartz calling himself B.O. Schwartz for some reason. He stands stands for B. Original. I think this might be a little sly writer's joke. Uh, but Carrie Bates and Elliot Magan are in a uh, editorial meeting with Schwartz, uh, trying to come up with an idea for the issue of this issue, uh, this month's issue of Justice League. Um, so the writers are you know putting themselves in the story literally. And uh, Schwartz goes out for a uh, to get some chili, and uh, Carrie and, El- and uh, Elliot say, "Well, we'll have a story by the time you're back." And then Elliot's like, "Why don't we do a story about the cosmic treadmill from your old Flash story?" And he's like, "Oh yeah, that's over here." And he's like, "Wait a minute, that that's real? That you know? Because of course, this story takes place on Earth Prime, our Earth, uh, pre-crisis. You know, pre- uh, Earth Prime is ours." There's Earth-1, which is where the Justice League lived. And then Earth-2, of course, Justice Society. I don't know how much of that I had to explain, really, but I did anyway. <laughs> so they tinker around with the... Uh, the uh, they put together the Cosmic Treadmill, and Carrie Bates accidentally starts it going and runs and then pops from existence in front of Elliot's eyes. Uh, he goes on a magical trip through space and time, and he ends up in Earth-2, where he finds out he can use his imagination to make things happen. Uh, he acts, he inadvertently helps some crooks get away uh, from Johnny Thunder and Thunderbolt and Robin. Uh, Robin the ex-boy wonder. I don't know if he's in his 30s why you would refer to him as the ex-boy wonder, but okay. Um, so he realizes that he has like sheer, as he, as he calls it, sheer mental energy, and uh, he decides to become a supervillain. Meanwhile, back on Earth Prime, Elliot is like, you know, telling Schwartz what happened, and uh, Schwartz says, oh, of course, there could have been some residue super speed energy left in that gizmo. Of course, that's why. Uh, so <laughs> Elliot says, look, you know, you have to let me go after him or whatever. Did I lose you, Jim? Hello. 
Okay, so you're still there. I'm still here. Yeah, now Jim just stopped. Not anymore. No, it says he's done. No, it says he's not. Uh, it could be storms going through the berg. Hopefully, you can re, uh, reconnect. So, just while we're waiting for Jim to get back, uh, talking a little bit about this issue, and I hate to talk about it without him, but I don't want to just have dead air. <laughs> uh, what I thought reading through this is kind of builds on what I was saying about the house style. And it never occurred to me before, I'm looking at Dick Dillon, and if I look at Jim Aparo in this era, mm -hmm. uh, to some small extent, uh, what's his name, uh, that was doing the Superman books, uh, Kurt Swan. Right. Uh, I think the house style at DC was uh, to try and emulate Neil Adams. I'm back. Ah, okay. okay. I don't know what happened, I just had to reset my router or something. Okay, you got up to the point where you said that uh, uh, Megan needed to go back to, or actually the other way around, Bates needed to go back? No, Bates is already over there, Megan followed, okay. followed him. Megan uh, was following as, him when you cut, cut off. Okay, just as Carmine Infantino is walking in, and he, was, he says, Who, hurry Julie, I can't let Carmine see this. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, Schwartz hides it from, uh, from Carmine Infantino that Megan has gone to... Uh, off, off on the classic treadmill, uh, he ends up in the middle of the sky. He falls into the ocean and is saved by Aquaman. He's ended up on Earth One, um, so he tells him there's no reason on this side of Andromeda to think I'm not a nutcase. But and voila, he they, he ends up at the Justice League satellite, and uh, Aquaman's like, I think we should at least hear his story. And he tells him about the different Earths, and he's tried to come come to find his friend, and. Um, He's like, all right, and this kind of thing is crazy, and they're going to escort him to the door, and he even tells Green Arrow that he talks like him because he writes in his, uh, you know, lines are modeled after his own speech patterns, and then he says, wait a minute, and he's like, he reveals uh, their secret identities to them, and, you know, it's showing that he actually is who he says he is. So by, you know, uh, and the Flash shows up and also vouches for Earth Prime or whatever, um, so we are back to Earth 2 in the Botanical Gardens, Carrie Bates is waiting there, and the entire Justice Society shows up this time, uh, all six heroes I mentioned before, and get immediately attacked by giant plants. There are giant Venus flytraps, vines, and then these spores that shoot out. One of them hits Johnny Thunder in the mouth so he can't say you and bring the Thunderbolt around. Um, Robin and Wildcat free themselves with karate chops, but eventually it's all for naught because the, uh, they get knocked out by gas. And Carrie uh, has the Justice Society at his feet. Um... We then get uh, a funny line, you know, what the green gopher, gophers are we waiting for? And then, uh, you know, Flash says we have to go find Carrie Bates. And then um, the, we f switch to the Injustice Society of America. And they are taking over some uh, Navy jets. They're trying to steal jets off an aircraft carrier. But the Justice League of Earth-1 shows up and fights them. And, oh man, hold on a second, I'm sorry. My computer just did another weird thing. <laughs> they fight them on the aircraft carrier over the planes, but it turns out they weren't fighting the Injustice Society at all. And oh no. They were fighting 
the justice, not the injustice society, but the justice society wearing the costumes of the injustice society. Confused yet? You probably should be. Um, <laughs> uh, to which, you know, Elliot Megan says, we're talking about fl- uh, freaking plot twists. And uh, Batman's like, but who? And the, the uh, last panel was, who Batman? Why no, 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 Then that little old plot twister, me, and Carrie Bates uh, flicks the thumb at himself. And uh, next month's issue finishes the story. Now, I just want to say as a side note, I read this as a little kid, and I never got to read the second half of the story until like maybe 2006 when it got collected in the Crisis on Multiple Earth series in trade. And I never got to figure out how the story ended out until like 30 years later. Mm. And I must say, I was very disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, if you had read it back when you were a little kid, you probably would have loved it. Probably. And then, you know, what's funny is you'd probably have residual nostalgia love for it to date. I still have a lot of love for this era of JLA, just because it was my introduction to the group. It was my introduction to Earth 2, the concept of parallel Earths, the Justice Society, and these older characters and villains. Um, all kinds of things. This is like my gateway to a lot of that. So, well, this this whole era is my, you know, Marvel and DC. Mostly Marvel for me, but Marvel yeah. and DC in this era is definitely you know my sweet spot in, in comics. Uh, when when you got cut off from us, I started to say to Gene, uh, building on my point about the house style, I believe that in this era, that the DC artists Dick Dillon, Jim Aparo, Kurt Swan. Uh, I'm trying to think of who else was Mur- even. Uh, what's, what's, M- was Murphy Anderson still there in the '70s? No. Uh, I don't know so much in the '70s. Uh, I'm thinking of who was. Uh, I hate when I draw a blank. The uh, Green Arrow, Warlord artist Mike, Mike, Mike Grell. I think I think the house style in general at this era was to try and emulate Neil Adams as much as possible. Hmm. Yeah, and and I think you know it's it, to me to some extent it's borne out even in this book you could see it. Yeah, especially if you're looking like on page nine where the Flash is taking off the the masks of Batman, Hawkman, and Green Arrow. That that looks like it's a Neil Adams panel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think Neil Adams is a bad choice either. I mean, I, I love me some Neil Adams art at, right. at, at any era. I mean, even even the recent stuff from Neil Adams that people are very very critical of. Uh, I'm critical of some of his choices as far as when, when, when he's written stuff himself, and to some extent a little bit of the inking I have some problems with. But as far as his layouts, I don't think he's lost a step. No, I, uh, I have this uh, the X Men omnibus of all the stuff he did, you know, in that run of X Men, and it's mm-hmm. still incredible. You know. Yeah, yeah, and and when you can when you consider how groundbreaking it was when that first came out too yeah as incredible as it is now back then it was yeah. jaw-dropping I oh believe. totally but you know this i guess this is one of you know one of the uh early attempts at comic book writing to deconstruct the whole hero you know setup by having the you know wink, uh, hey, look, it's the two writers, and they can come and they can cause mm-hmm. you know whatever they want to happen with their imaginations. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of an interesting concept, and it's you know, again, it's one of the early attempts to deconstruct the uh, the genre. Right. So I, I give it a little bit of a, a a little bit more credit based on the fact that at the time this was done, it hadn't, it, it wasn't as 
as, as commonplace as it is now. No, it wasn't basically the most you would see is like in, in Marvel, you would see the back of Stanley and Jack Kirby just in a few panels. Yeah, so they, they had no... For the most part. No one had really written themselves into the actual story. They were more bit players. Right. And then it wasn't until later, like, remember, John Byrne wrote himself into the Trial of Galactus and uh, mm-hmm. Fantastic Four and... Um, Oh, I'm trying to remember some other, you know, I mean, it had been done after this, but, I mean, as a kid, it kind of blew my mind. It's like, what? Like, they came well, from, the, the, you can go to other Earths from this Earth? Whoa, you know, like, <laughs> who are these guys? The, the, the fun thing that they were doing around around this era was the whole, uh, what was it, uh, Rutland, Vermont, with the Halloween oh, parades, right, and you'd right. have you'd have the comic, appear, comic creators actually at the parade, where people were dressed up as heroes and villains, and you know, basically, it was an unofficial uh, crossover between Marvel and DC. Mm. Right. So, I mean, there was there was definitely some stuff like that going on, but I think this takes it a step further with them actually becoming the 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 guest hero and villain of the piece. Right. You know, I, I think that's that's taking it to a step it had that they hadn't gone to before, and probably haven't gone to too much since uh-huh. but the, the whole idea of deconstructing the heroes and you know kind of stepping on some of the tropes and that kind of thing I think that was a fairly new concept at this point so I, I have to give some credit on the writing you know uh, I'll, I'll go with the uh, be original Schwartz thought <laughs> B.O. <laughs> yeah I'm sure that's what it stood for be original right yeah <laughs> I guess it probably depended on who you had. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I'll grade this uh, for myself if, you, if there's nothing else you guys want to say. Or uh, sure, if you if, if yeah, as long as you guys are done commenting on it, we can go right to the grades. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Again, this is through nostalgia glasses for me because again, I, I basically searched through mics to try to figure out the oldest comic I can remember reading, and this is one of them. Um, so I, you know, for the cover. I give it a B. I, I like Ernie Chan a lot, and uh, but the bat, there's like no background in this cover. And that, I mean, I know there's a lot of heroes in the cover. And I know they want the heroes to pop out from the the you know stark background, kind of like in the Thor cover actually. But um, you know, I, I feel like he could he could have done a little more with it, you know. But as far as like the you know, the the secret mystery villain with his back to the camera, I thought that was cool, and uh, I still do. So I give the the cover a B. Um, I give the story also, an, I give the story an A, considering the time it came out and you know the kind of you know breaking, you know shattering the fourth wall it's doing and stuff. Uh, I give the R to B. It's Dick Dillon at his, you know, the height of his powers in the '70s. It's really good. Um, there are a couple of like sketchy elements here, some faces that don't quite look right or whatever. But but you, uh, the more you, uh, the more I look at, it, the more you're right. It is very influenced by Neil Adams, especially like the camera angles. Um, some of the transparencies I see here, you know, um, uh, action lines, you know, very all those are kind of you know, things they borrowed from Neil. So, mm-hmm. so I give the uh, I I probably give it overall a B. All right, yeah, uh, I agree on the cover. The cover is a B cover. It's uh, it it gets your attention. It's like hey, Justice League and Justice Society and a mystery villain, but. Everyone is more or less in the same running pose. Batman, Flash, Aquaman, Doctor Midnight—they right. they all look exactly the same, just different costumes. Yeah. So it's a it's a little more on the the boring side, but it, it would get my attention. Yeah, I'd give I'd 
plunked down a quarter for this. I got, I forgot to mention the floating heads at the top too. Yes, <laughs> I like the float, I always like floating that. head ro- floating head roster is always awesome. Uh, story wise, you know, uh, n- this isn't my preferred era, so the story seems a little on the goofier side to me. But I understand what you guys are saying. How you know, it's it is on more on the groundbreaking side. Uh, so yeah, story. I'll also give it a B. It it was entertaining. It makes me want to read the next issue, which I happen to have the a CBR of. So I will be reading the next issue. Uh, hopefully, I won't be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> you won't have to wait forty years. So <laughs> right. As far as the art goes, yeah, it, it it is on the house style side of things, and as Paul said, you could do worse than try and emulate Neil Adams. Uh, more scratchy than I like, not as clean as the the Thor issue we were talking about, but it it does look really good. The faces are really nicely done. Uh, some of the some of the, the the figure poses aren't all that terrific, but. Yeah, I'd, I'd I'd say, yeah, to to be boring, I'm gonna give the art a B. So that makes the whole book a B for me. Okay, uh, I have, I am, and always have been a mark for uh, Justice League, Justice Justice Society crossovers. Uh, I'm, if anything, I'm always been a mark for the Justice Justice Society in general. I have to say, uh, so right off the bat, I have to confess that you know any any book that came out that had a crossover of the justice league and justice society i was going to buy they didn't really have to hard sell me on the cover they could just they, they could have had no picture all and just had the words <laughs> that, that, that it was a crossover and I, I would pick it up uh that said overall i think it's a fairly good cover i hadn't noticed that everybody's leaning to the right as you said jim and now i can't unsee it <laughs> uh, but uh you know, I, th- I think everybody is competently laid out. Ernie Chan does has gotten some love on this show, uh, though some people think we were, I guess, not being nice to him, but we really meant it in a, in, I think, in a in a loving way. So uh, I do like Ernie Chan overall. Uh, it's I think it's a good cover. It's just not a great cover. I, I think you guys hit it on the head with a B. It's a B cover. The interior art, I've always liked Dick Dillon. And I see what you're saying, Gene, about it being a little scratchy and some of the choices that were made. You know, there, there is some areas where it could be better. Uh, it's emulating Neil Adams, but to be fair, it's not Neil Adams. If Neil Adams drew the same thing, it would be superior to this. Uh, so I think almost by definition, the interior art is a B. And story-wise, I'm going to be a little bit more generous because I do think it was being pretty creative for the day. I think it was doing things that we hadn't really seen before. Yes, Gene, I agree that it's goofy, but hmm. I don't think it's—I I don't think that's unintentional. I, I, I didn't say it was bad goofy. goofy. I just said it was yeah. goofy. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Yeah, yeah. uh, but I, I think it was meant to be a little goofy. It was meant to be a little silly at times, and, and you know, to be fair, it was meant to appeal to nine-year-old Jim. <laughs> it worked. Mm-hmm. So I think story-wise, I think it works. I think it, they, they did a good job of, of coming up with something original and creative, and I'm going to give it an A- minus on the story. So the A- minus on the story is going to bump it from the two Bs up to a B-plus overall for me. But 
it's another good book as far as I'm concerned and, and fun to read. I, I have no problem with, you know, with reading books as if I'm reading it in the era it came out. And in the era this came out, this was fun and it still is for me. So that said, I want to thank you both for, uh, for pinch hitting with me tonight when I couldn't get the other boys. You know, I threw out the message, and you both came running, which I appreciate. Uh, Gene, I know, currently is limited to the occasional guest spot here and there. No, no regular show right now. Right. Uh, unless, unless anything's changing that I'm not aware. No, of. no things. Uh, basically, the the family schedule takes precedence, so I have very limited time to do so- things like this. Uh, so yeah, right now I am. Uh, Siskoid from Fire and Water said, uh, has described me as the the Batman of podcasting right now. I am the consummate guest star. <laughs> hopefully, America's guest. Hopefully I will raise the ratings of whatever show I'm on like Batman does. Uh, I hope so. But the regular thing I'm doing is my blog thehammerstrikes.com which I put a new post out every Thursday on whatever geeky topic pops into my head last week was all about pro wrestling this week is all about uh how marvel can recast the cinematic universe and not reboot so it's it all over the place if you like some of the opinions i've had here you may like the blog so head on over and check it out all right good deal uh thanks again and jim uh like I said, it's been a while trying to get together. I'm glad we finally did. I'm glad you were available to come on tonight. Well, I'm uh, glad I could, too. It's been, you're right. Yeah. It's been a while. I'm... Why don't you uh, tell everybody where they can find you? Uh, you can get the Walking Dead TV podcast and the DC TV podcast covering, uh, respectively, The Walking Dead and Fear the Walking Dead and all the DC, she- uh, DC television shows. Uh, right now we're only covering Preacher, but in a couple months uh, when uh, Flash and Arrow and Supergirl and Lucifer and iZombie all come back up, we'll be covering those too. Those are at hhwlod.com. You can catch Nothing's On, a freeform movie and television coverage show, and uh, Paradigm Shift, a D&D show that I'm part of uh, the adventuring crew on at the Taylor Network of Podcast.com. And we're going to be launching Spirit of 77 soon. It's going to be a hybrid uh, RPG slash uh, shared fiction uh, mm. podcast, kind of like you know, Welcome to Night Vale or something like that, um, called Spirit of 77, about a bunch of uh, 70s TV stars who meet and decide to team up uh, that we've all come, <laughs> cool, that yeah. we've come up with. So that'll be the Taylor Network podcast as well that's coming in a few weeks. So that's where you can find me. And you can follow me on Twitter at Yoda Jones. And I'm going to talk to, after we sign off, I'm going to talk to Jim for another minute because I have plans for him on Is It Yours too, so listen for him there. So, and, but that's it for now. Thank you everybody for tuning in and listening, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks. Uh, yep. Thank you, Paul. <laughs>Thank you so much for listening to our show and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back issue awesomeness you can contact back to the bins to leave feedback comments questions suggestions and criticisms via email at back to the bins at gmail.com or by joining the back to the bins group on facebook 
Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Each and every month, the Two True Freaks Network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide. Sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available. Inquiries may be made via email to twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Oh, mmm. Ah, oh, this, the aroma that just hit me. Mm.